For the next three weeks, I would like to unfold for you, as best I can, the biblical doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Today, next Sunday, the Sunday after that, and then the Sunday evening of the 24th. Four messages on the biblical doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And what I would like to do is begin by explaining some of the words in that sentence and uh, set them at a level that the children, I think, will be able to understand. So if, you're, if you've got a child and, and they're tuning out, tune them in for about seven minutes, and then they can fend for themselves after that. Take the word doctrine, kids. And I said, I'm going to do this for the kids because then I'll be sure the adults know what I'm talking about, too. What does the word doctrine mean? It's not a word that we use very often at school or in play. Here's the word. Now, when your parents ask you today at lunch, what did the pastor say doctrine meant? You should answer, it means teaching. Got it? Teaching. Or Bible doctrine means Bible teaching. So, what the Bible teaches about Christ would be the doctrine of Christ. Or what the Bible teaches about heaven would be the doctrine of heaven. Now, notice, I don't say doctrines of Christ or doctrines, with an S on the end, of heaven or this big word perseverance. Why don't I? Because the Bible has lots of different teachings about Christ. It says this about Christ. It says that about Christ. It says that, but I don't say doctrines of Christ. The reason I don't is because when I use the word doctrine, I mean when you take all the teachings of the Bible about something, like Christ or heaven, and you put them all together so that they fit together to make one big whole that doesn't get all mixed up, that's a doctrine of Christ. Now, let me stick in a little parenthesis here. I don't know if the kids would be too interested in this, but it's important for all of us. Where are you going to hear doctrinal preaching and teaching? What kind of church will you hear this kind of preaching in? You'll hear it in churches where the Bible is considered to be God's authoritative, inspired, infallible word. Because God is not a God of confusion, and therefore if the Bible is God's word, all these different teachings on the different topics hang together. If you don't believe that the Bible is God's word, but is a, a religious record of high uh, value, along with other religious records, then you'll say, well, this writer wrote this about uh, Christ, and this one wrote this about Christ, and this one. And they, you can learn valuable things from each writer. But the thought that they all remarkably cohere into one uh, truth that hangs together without contradiction, if you don't believe the Bible is God's word, you very likely won't believe that, and therefore you won't attempt to preach about the doctrine of Christ or the doctrine of heaven or the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Close parenthesis. All right, we've got the word doctrine now, right? A doctrine is a teaching. A Bible doctrine is a Bible Teaching, what the Bible teaches about something. Let's take another word, perseverance. Now, there's a, an even less common word, probably, than the word doctrine. What does the word perseverance mean? Well, I thought of some words that uh, 
worked for me, but I thought they probably wouldn't have worked for Barnabas. Let me toss them out anyway. Uh, the word endurance would be a good substitute, or the word persistence would be a good substitute for perseverance. But endurance and persistence don't help with a five-year-old. So let me try an illustration. What is perseverance? Suppose you're in a race, and uh, it's a long race, and you are running, and near the end, and you are dog-tired. How do you finish the race? What does it take to finish the race? And you might answer, it takes strength to finish the race. Or you might answer, it takes a big desire to finish the race. You might have enough strength, but if you don't want to, then you don't finish. So you got to have a desire. And it takes effort. you got to try hard, even when you don't feel like it, to finish the race. Well, if you put all those together, trying hard, wanting to, and finding the strength to do it, that's perseverance. Let me give you an illustration now. You've got a friend named Patrick, because it starts with P. You've got a friend named Patrick. He's in a race. It's a mile. He's on the fourth lap, and he's coming down the track, and you're standing there as his friend, and you want to cheer him on to finish, and you can see him. He's just all out of whack. His, his limbs look like they're hardly connected coming down the last lap. And you could say, persevere, Patrick. Of course, you won't say that because everybody will laugh at you and think you're crazy to say persevere Patrick in front of everybody. What will you say? You'll say, hang in there, Pat. So the answer at the dinner table today, when mom or dad says, what did the pastor say perseverance means is he said it means hanging in there. Because that's the one that will be easier to remember than endurance and persistence and all those other things. Per perseverance means hanging in there when it's hard to finish something. Okay, got that one now. One more. Saints. The, perse the, the Bible doctrine or teaching of the perseverance or the hanging in there of the saints. Now, what is a saint? A saint is not a person who gets killed for Jesus. A saint is not a missionary and a saint is not a preacher. A saint, real simple, is a Christian. A true Christian. When Paul wrote to the Christians at Philippi, here's what he said. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. And he simply meant all you Christians who believe in Jesus. So don't take saints the way some uh, religious movements take it namely of a higher order of Christianity. It isn't. It's just you and me if we believe in Jesus Christ and trust him as our Lord and Savior. Now, let's sum it up. I'm going to talk for four messages about the Bible doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, which we now translate what the Bible teaches about the hanging in there of True Christians. Now, how am I going to do this? Well, the reason Dean didn't read the text is because uh, late yesterday, as I finished this message, I decided I'm going to give an overview of the book of Hebrews rather than launch right into the text. The text will take up next 
week when all these pastors are joined with us who have stayed around after the conference. I want to show you this morning that the book of Hebrews has more to say about perseverance or hanging in there than any other book in the New Testament. And I want, as we walk through the book of Hebrews, for you to notice what's wrong in this church. The writer of this book, and we don't know, by the way, who the writer was. Some think Paul, some think Barnabas, some think Apollos. We don't know which of the apostolic group there around Paul it was. You can tell by the last verses of the book, it was one of those people, because Timothy was a good sidekick of this person. But what this writer sees in the church is what I want us to see. What's wrong with the church of the Hebrews that he's writing to? And then very practically, I want you to ask, am I included? When I read a text, don't just treat it academically, looking for an argument one way or the other about perseverance or security or assurance or something. Let it say me and see if you're in there and then do whatever needs to be done if you are. And then the last thing I suggest that you do as we move through this survey is you take a pen or a pencil and put a P beside each of the verses that I'm going to quote for perseverance. If you use P for promise in your Bible, then put P-E-R for perseverance or H-A-N-G-I-N-G-I-N-T-H-E-R-E or H. Let's start in chapter 2. Chapter 2. Remember, what we're looking for is, it's, it's like listening into a telephone conversation now, right? You can't hear what, what the uh, Hebrews said or what they've done. You can only hear one end of the conversation. And you're going to try to read what's happening at the other end of the line. All right? Let's read verse 1 of chapter 2. We must pay the closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. Now, I infer from that that one of the problems in the church of the Hebrews is that they are beginning to drift in their Christianity. I picture them in a boat, and the oars are in the boat, and their feet is up, are up, and, and they're drifting. They're not rowing. They're drifting downstream. Look at verse 3 now. We'll add another word to the word drifting. Verse 3 says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So to the word drifting, you can add the word neglecting. They are neglecting the greatness of their salvation. Evidently, it's become old hat. They're just not engaged with it anymore. It doesn't excite them. They don't read the Bible with any gusto. They, they come to church perfunctorily. They go through motions, but they're not engaged. There's a neglect in their life about the things of God. Verse 6 of chapter 3. We're going to be hopping some big hops and little hops as we go through here. Chapter 3, verse 6. You could add to the word drifting and neglecting. Now the word slipping. It says in the second half of the verse, we are his, that is Christ's, house. We are his house or household if we hold fast 
our confidence and pride in our hope. So evidently this writer is concerned that these these uh, believers in uh, wherever they are, the Hebrew believers are not holding fast to any more to hope. Their, their grip is loosening and the rope of hope is starting to slip through their hands. So drifting, neglecting, slipping is the mark of this church. Now, what's the opposite of drifting, neglecting and slipping? Hanging in there, perseverance, endurance, persistence. So he's a very he's very worked up about this issue of perseverance. Let's keep going right here in chapter three, verse 12. We can add another word to drifting, neglecting and slipping, namely carelessness. It says, take care, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief leading you to fall away from the living God. So they are evidently not taking care. Something's wrong. They're not uh, vigilant. They're not taking care. And so they're becoming careless. They're drifting. They're neglecting. They're slipping. And the word used here is that they are in danger of falling away from the living God. So what's the remedy? Verse 13. Exhort one another every day. As long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, I infer that on the other end of that telephone conversation is that the conversation in the church of the Hebrews has become very worldly. They talk about the twins, the stock market, the weather, clothes, health. Kids, school, work, all good, fine, just no God. No urgency about spiritual things in their conversation. So he says, look, you'll never make it that way as a church. You'll be drifting, neglecting, slipping, careless, and go back. So I urge you, start building into your conversation as a church exhortations about spiritual things. How are we doing at Bethlehem? When you get together with people, when you call each other on the telephone, this amazing invention that enables this every day here to be taken somewhat seriously. How are you doing in exhorting one another about spiritual life and saying, look, we didn't talk the way we should have this morning. I'm sorry about the attitude I have. If that thing gets a foothold in our lives, it's going to blow us out of the water we won't have any love for one another. It'll spread throughout the church. It'll make a mess of things. We've got to get this straightened out. That's the kind of exhortation that could happen. Do we get urgent spiritually in our conversation? Evidently, it wasn't happening very much at this church, and the writer was real concerned about it. They were drifting, slipping, losing their hold, neglecting, going backwards, and they weren't remedying it with the kind of spiritual exhortations that they needed to. Now, why is that so serious? Look at verse 14. Because we share in Christ if we hold our first confidence firm to the end. So hanging in there with confidence in God to the end is utterly crucial. Perseverance is not an unimportant or second-rate doctrine. Let's go to chapter 4, verse 1. 
Here we see the danger that the church is in described in not attaining heaven. It says, while the promise of entering his rest, that means the the rest of the new Jerusalem and the uh, promised land across the Jordan of death, while the promise of entering his rest remains, let us fear lest any of you be judged to have failed to reach it. The real possibility exists in the church that there are people who profess to be believers who will not attain it, who will not get to heaven. Now, notice the word fear. Let us fear lest any of you be judged to have failed to reach it. Now, I infer from that admonition that one of the things happening in this church is that they are developing a rationalization that cancels fear out of the Christian life. They have developed a kind of theology which says Christians shouldn't have any godly fear of what might become of them. And this text very plainly says that we should fear lest any be judged to attain the rest of heaven. So here, I picture, let me picture this boat with you again. Here they are on a boat. Their feet are up and they have a walkman on. The walkman of the world over their heads. Now, the music could be classical, you know, movie themes, uh, soft and hard rock. You just, whatever you like. There's just no God in it. So they got this on. And they're listening there, and their arms are folded, basking in the sun. The oars are in the boat, and they're drifting downstream. Peaceful. And here are these nutty preachers on the shore. Hey! Hey! And they, they look over. Hi. Hi. And just, this, this, is, this is the way a lot of people do on Sunday morning. Hey, you tell good stories, Pastor. I like your illustrations. Everything seems to hang together. Neat worship leader, too. Good choir. Right on. Right toward the falls. Hey! Take a thing off! There's Niagara Falls of Judgment just down there. I get this from chapter 5, verse 11. This idea of the walkman. About this we have much to say, which is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. How do you get to be dull of hearing in the Christian life? How do you get to be the kind of person who comes to church, can hear a sermon? It can be a soft sermon, loud sermon, good sermon, bad sermon, tender sermon, hard sermon, and nothing changes. It's just kind of boop, boop. You go home, eat, turn on the TV, and do your thing. There is no urgency. It's not processed. There's no uh, question asked, might I need to change my life? Might I be drifting toward destruction because of the fact that there's never any urgency spiritually in my conversation? And we're going to talk in the weeks to come about how you get to be that kind of person and how you break out of being that kind of Person. Evidently, these people were losing their desire for the word of God since they were dull of hearing. 
They had no energy to think or ask questions. They were just flat and they didn't hear with zeal. They didn't take and apply to their lives. There was no urgent interaction with the word of God. Look at chapter six, verse one, where the author pleads with them to break out of this neglectful uh, mediocrity of floating in the water. And he says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on, press on to maturity. Evidently. These people were developing the notion that in the gearbox of uh, this automobile called Christianity, there are three gears. Forward, neutral, and reverse. And that's wrong. There is no neutral in the gearbox of Christianity. You either go forward or you go backwards. But they had developed this idea, evidently, that they could just sit in the water, just sit there in the boat with their feet up and the oars in the boat. And the whole point of the book of Hebrews is there's no neutral in the gearbox of Christianity. You're either moving forward toward salvation or you're moving backward toward destruction. And if you think you're coasting, you're coasting backward. If you're treading water in a river, you're not staying still. And the river of the world and the flesh and the devil is a deep and fast stream. Chapter 10, verse 23. We take a big leap over verses or chapters 7, 8 and 9. If we had time, we would talk about why that is, why there are no admonitions In those chapters, they are a beautiful, deep, glorious unfolding of the superiority of Christ over the old covenant. Chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. You can just hear the the heart of this author breaking as he pleads with them not to make two mistakes that they seem to be making. One is the mistake of thinking that hope is an automatic thing and that it comes out of nowhere and just stays. I'll tell you, hope is not an automatic thing and it has wings. If you let go of it, it flies away. That's the point. If you let go of the the legs of the eagle of hope, then it will fly away. If you hold on, it will carry you to glory. Hope is not an automatic thing. Hope is a precious gift that we cleave to like a canteen in the desert. And they were making the mistake that they could just put their feet up in the boat and, and that bird of hope would just sit there on the prow and take them to glory. It won't. It'll fly away. Here's the second mistake they were making. That love just happens in a community. You don't have to work at it. You don't have to stir up the brew of love in the community. It just happens. And he says that's not right either. We must stir up one another to love and good works. I tell you, a church that begins to take love for granted will become ice cold. Let me stir you up to love and good works with a letter I got in the mail this week. This was so encouraging. 
We had a visitor. We had a lot of visitors last Sunday. It was Easter, right? Well, this, this family came from out of town to visit a relative. And uh, they came to all the services during the day and uh, wrote me this letter when they got home. And uh, the person they're talking about might be in this room. If you are, I, I thank God for you. And uh, I want the rest of us to be like you. We truly saw Christianity in action in, last, in the last service of your church on Sunday. He meant the festival in the evening. A little unkept man who has been, had been drinking far too much sat down across from us. A nice-looking, nicely-dressed young man from your church sat beside this man sharing the hymnal and Bible with him and conversing with him at length after the service. Your message was great <laughs> that morning, but we will have to admit that that display of love left a more lasting impression this week. Truly an Easter story. I hope that stirs you up to be that kind of person today after the service and every Sunday. You hear what that's saying? That's saying that that message was louder than my message. That's right. Living sermons are more powerful than spoken sermons. They are. And if they don't exist here, I can talk while I'm blue in the face and we will be a living contradiction as a church. And so I encourage you, like the text says, stir one another up to love and good works. In other words, don't take hope for granted and don't take love for granted. Hold on to the legs of that eagle and stir one another up to love. Chapter 10, verse 32. But recall the former days when after... You were enlightened. You endured a hard struggle and sufferings. In other words, you weren't always slipping backward. You weren't always cold. You weren't always neglectful and careless. Don't you remember those great days when the gospel first came and the light dawned and you began to follow Jesus and you loved him so much and valued his purposes in the world so much that you suffered? It goes on to tell about how they were willing to be imprisoned and risked the plundering of their property just to identify with a believer. Oh, they've gone back so far and he's so concerned they could just go right off the cliff of judgment. There they are in their easy chair. No zeal anymore. And evidently, there was a way of understanding the Christian life arising in their midst that said, past experiences suffice to make present acceptable Christians. It's a widespread misunderstanding that this book is after. Past experiences, the glorious days during the revival when I walked forward, suffice to make me an acceptable and persevering Christian. They don't. You cannot rest on past experiences. That's the whole point of this book. Verse 35, I haven't read yet. 35, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance. There it is, hanging in there, persistence, endurance, perseverance. You have need of perseverance so that you may do the will of God and receive what is promised. And then verse 39 shows us what's at stake. But we are not of those who shrink back. There's another word for drifting, neglecting, careless. 
We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and keep their souls. So those are your two alternatives. There's no neutral. You can either go backwards or you can go forward. You can be losing the faith and heading for destruction, or you can be keeping the faith and pressing on towards maturity and salvation. Nobody stands still in the Christian life thinking that they are just treading water and holding their own. It's backward or forward. Chapter 12, one last text on the perseverance issue. Chapter 12, verse 12. He taps into an image of a racer who is utterly dog-tired at the end of the race. Lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Make straight your paths. In other words, don't get out of your lane. You stumble over some starting block. So that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Now picture this person. This is many Christians who've run a long time in the Christian walk. are tired. Now when you run, you don't run like this with your hands down. Nobody runs like this unless they're just about to drop. And your knees, you've all run a long way until you feel that there's so much fatigue in your legs that if you were to put your leg down just wrong, your knee would pop right out of joint because you're so tired you couldn't catch it. He's, that's the danger this author sees. If your knee pops, you're down. He pleads, don't let that happen. You can make it if you just keep your knees together, lift your hands, strengthen yourself, we got three weeks now to talk about how do you do that as you're getting near the race and you feel yourself about to drop. Where does this strength come from when he just says it right out of the blue? Strengthen those hands. Lift them up. Pump the pistons again. Get those knees going. Come on. And you stand there saying, what are you talking about? I am. He must mean something. He's not talking nonsense. There must be a way to experience strength in response to the word of God when it says to one who is stumbling Don't let your knee pop out of joint and go down. Well, let me sum up where we've been. They are drifting in a river of the world leading towards destruction. Their oars are in the boat. Their feet are up. The walkman of the world is on their head. And they're neglecting the greatness of their salvation. They're losing their grip on the rope of hope. Their hearts are beginning to be hardened. Their conversation has no spiritual urgency. Their spiritual ears are getting dull. They're not pressing on to maturity. They are coming weak and sluggish in the knees and the hands of their spirit. And the result is a shrinking back and a possible falling away from the living God and being destroyed. The opposite of all of that is perseverance, the perseverance of the saints, the hanging in there. The becoming of a zealous, growing Christian. So there are two alternatives in the Christian life. Press on to maturity, chapter 6, verse 1, or drift back to destruction, chapter 10, verse 39. Now, as we close, I hope there is brewing in your mind about eight questions. Because if there isn't brewing any question in your mind, you are very likely among the dull of hearing who have grown so accustomed to God talk, 
it has no impact at all. And that's a dangerous spiritual situation to be in. Let me mention some of the questions that I hope are just bursting out of your mind right now. Number one, if what we have just read is so, is the assurance of my salvation now and in the future a possibility or even proper? Is there a difference between biblical assurance of salvation and a kind of cavalier security? Two, can a person who is truly saved and born again so far slip back that he goes over the falls of judgment and be lost forever? If not, why all this talk and warning about the danger of destruction? If so, well, then where can there be any assurance? Three, it raises the question of whether assurance of salvation and saving faith are the same thing. Can you have saving faith and yet have ups and downs in your actual emotional experience of feeling assured in God's faithfulness? And finally, it raises the question of how do you get and maintain Biblical assurance, if such a thing is proper anyway, which is why there can't just be one Sunday message on these passages. So, my desire now is to leave you not without a biblical answer to the question of assurance, even though we won't be able to put the two together this morning yet. This book proves that those questions that I just asked are not out of Piper's Blue. They are rather straight out of a God-centered heart because they're the very questions posed and answered in this book. Isn't it remarkable that the book in the New Testament that is most concerned with perseverance hanging in there is also most concerned with assurance that you will hang in there? It shouldn't be surprising to those who have a sense of the biblical dimension of things. Let me just read you several verses as we draw to a close about assurance. And you can put a big A in the margin this time as we look at three or four verses here quickly. Chapter 6, verse 11. Chapter 6, verse 11, the text we will focus mainly on next Sunday probably. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness in realizing the full assurance of hope unto the end. So there is clearly the heartbeat of our author, is it not? He does not want to destroy any of your assurance. He wants you to have full and total assurance that you will make it to glory. Skip down a few verses to to verse 18 of that chapter where he says that God has made an oath so that We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope that is set before us. You see what he wants? He doesn't want anything he has said about the need to persevere to detract one iota from your encouragement that there's hope that you'll make it to the end. Chapter 10, verse 22. I love the swish of those pages. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance. There it is again. Not this time of hope, but of faith. They're almost the same. We'll talk about that in weeks to come. Faith and hope. Full assurance of faith. Read on in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without any wavering 
For he who promised is faithful. He doesn't want you to waver one tiny smidget in your assurance that you're going to make it to the end. One more verse, 35 of chapter 10. Pleading, you can hear his voice almost break. Don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. He doesn't want you to throw it away. He doesn't want anything he has said to diminish your confidence of making it to glory at all. So, there are three things I want to leave ringing in your ears. Number one, that there is no neutral in the gearbox of Christianity. That is, there is either a rowing forward toward maturity and salvation or a drifting backward toward hardness, deceit, and destruction. That's the first thing I want ringing in your ears. No treading water that leaves you in one place. You swim forward or you drift backward. Hold on. The second thing I want to leave ringing in your ears is that the pressing on, the holding on, the the uh, urgent pursuit of maturity and hope and holiness is not to be done with a fearful sense of uncertainty about whether you're going to make it, but rather with a, a rock-solid confidence that God in heaven will work in me that which is pleasing in his sight. Chapter 13, verse 21, which we didn't look at at all today, but which is one of the most important verses in the book. And the third thing I want ringing in your ears is that there are many questions unanswered. I want you to take them out of this room. How do you put that together? All that assurance you're talking about and all that perseverance you're requiring... I don't see how you put that together.